Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver Newspaper and BIV.com. We're going to be speaking to our weekly technology panel in just a few seconds, but uh, first, I have a few events to tell you all about. October 2nd at the Vancouver Club, it's the Navigating the U.S. for Business panel. We have experts discussing the best practices amidst some geopolitical challenges. Also at the Vancouver Club, this is October 9th. It's Cannabis Year One. We'll have another expert panel examining the opportunities as well as those challenges that will exist now and uh, going forward into the next year too. Because look, we've got edibles coming up at the end of 2019. So in just a second, our tech panel is going to delve into the future of WeWork CEO Adam Newman. But we are hearing immersion reports that maybe his fate could be decided by the time that you, the listeners, hear this. So I think it's still worth listening to this segment because we really get into what's going on at WeWork and what the future of governance could mean. So still listen to this. It's going to be worth it. Why don't I welcome today's guest? We have Linda Fox. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and Matthew Klippenstein. He is a, a consultant at Electron Communications. Linda, Matthew, thank you guys both for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Thanks again, Tyler. Okay, so maybe we can kick it off with a little bit of palace intrigue. That's always fun to discuss. But look at WeWork right now. Uh, it all stems from its collapsing initial public offering. I want to ask you guys, though, CEO Adam Newman, he seems to be at odds with their biggest investor, SoftBank, right now. And there is a push to put Adam Newman out uh, in another position, whether he resigns or takes up like a non-executive chairman role. Linda, what's your take on everything that's going down? Are Adam Newman's days numbers at, numbered at WeWork? I think if the investors want to get their money out of this deal, they have to be numbered. He's got to go. This is um, Uber on steroids, right? This is a really bad situation. I'm shocked the investors, Miyoshi-san specifically, allowed this governance structure to happen, that the deal, the terms of this IPO could have been so botched that they have to postpone it. Um, So yeah, I think if he doesn't go, um, that deal's not going to hit the public market anytime this year, and their cash reserves are going to be empty. This could go from where they are now, what are they valued at now? We're going to give them generously $20 Perhaps this gets wiped out. It's hard to see, but um, he's got to go. Yeah, it's still not a profitable company, Matthew. And do you think that's caused to give a lot of these investors some concern, especially when they're looking at this valuation that just seems to be kind of way too out there at this point? Yes. Um, In terms of uh, the valuation and IPOing, I do have a number of friends who actually desperately hoping it IPOs so they can make certain bets against it. Uh, now, ah. <laughs> uh, certainly, if a company isn't making money, one has to see the, the path to profit. And in the, the case of clean tech, usually the path to profit is scale. You know, if you, can, uh, if you can sell 10 or 100 times as much product, your overhead per unit cost becomes much lower, and then you can, you can come to, uh, to profitability. It is, since WeWork has already achieved a huge scale, um, I'm sure that uh, some people might be concerned can they swing into the black? Can they turn a profit given that they've had this chance? They have scaled somewhat. Yeah. Linda, one of the things that you brought up is kind of the governance structure here. Um, it's really up to Adam Newman and whether or not he wants to leave. Do you think, I don't know, a, enough of a pressure sort of tactic is placed on him? He will go willingly or do you think, I don't know, he's going to see this through? It, it's tough to say right now. I I don't see him going willingly. I think that he's, it seems to me he's in it for the money. Certainly he cashes out $700 million to buy five homes. So money is obviously important to him. 
Um, but he's also got this spiritual angle he's taking with this. So this is his baby. This is him making the world a better place. This is raising the consciousness of the planet. Um, so I don't see him walking away easily. He he also really loves control, right? He tried to create the super voting shares for a 20 to 1 vote on those shares. That mm -hmm. since got rolled back to 10 to 1. But that strikes, that sort of tells me that he's a guy who wants to be in control of this this thing and he's not going to go easily. Then again, uh, if his investors aren't giving them the money, they're going to burn through $2 billion of cash a year. Maybe he realizes, okay, if he wants to get anything out of this deal, he's best to step to the side. And he's um, perhaps got enough I other irons in the fire that he could focus his consciousness on. Yeah, Matthew, hmm. you brought up the road to profitability just a moment ago. And I I've been writing stories about how WeWork has been moving into Vancouver, taking up a lot of office space, uh, getting those leases and uh, kind of undercutting what people would otherwise be having to pay. Mm -hmm. Are they just, uh, especially if you look at the real estate market in Vancouver, is it a sustainable business model? Is it kind of tough to say at this moment? Or I don't know, do you think that there needs to be a clearer path to profitability for investors before we can see an IPO to you know such a huge degree as they're trying to push forward with? Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I think there is definitely uh, money to be made in the co-working space, which is essentially what WeWork is. Uh, perhaps augmented with um, with the the fancy um, baubles that you get with the Silicon Valley culture. Uh, there have been uh, um, companies out for about forty years. I think Regis might have been the, one of the first co working organizations about forty years ago. So there is definitely a working business model. I think the big bigger question would be. Is WeWork doing the hard work on the nuts and bolts of uh, bringing costs in line with what their revenues can be, and is it not trying to grow at any cost? Basically, if you if you if you get too hungry, then you take up a bunch of space. If you have trouble filling that space, that becomes a very big problem in a very short time. So, um, yeah, I agree that uh, there is definitely a business case to be made in this space. You can kind of make an analogy to Amazon's clouds, like use the service when you want. If you're traveling to Toronto, well, just use the WeWork office there. It's a great idea. Uh, but you have to have the mechanics of the business to be very sound in order to, to successfully pull off that transition. Well, and I think it might be a nice deal for a smaller, uh, smaller deal. We're looking at their biggest competitor in Europe valued at about $3 billion. Mm -hmm. So maybe with a realistic valuation. Um, this could work, but you're still talking about a business that does not scale. This is not technology. Mm -hmm. They are taking out long-term leases on very expensive space and selling it to their tenants for um, a short-term um, tie-in. So these people can, the tenants can walk away within a month and mm -hmm. WeWork is on the hook for these leases for many, many years. So I don't see how that works. And by the way, they couldn't make money in a bull market. Mm -hmm. What is going to happen the second the market <laughs> turns? I yeah. do not see right. in their structure today and what they're trying to achieve and the way they're going about it, mm -hmm. uh, the conservative approach that's working in Europe and building a nice little business that's profitable. I don't see this company turning itself around to become that. So what are we left with? We're left with a leasing company with a founder that has big visions beyond the scope of the company's ability. Um, and that's not a great place for investors to be sitting. Yeah, it, it, as you brought up right at the beginning, Linda, it makes you wonder how SoftBank, you know, kind of went forward with kind of a structure like this in that they, they wouldn't be able to have a little bit more control as they've been pouring billions into this company. Well, and Miyoshi-san calling this the Alibaba is another Alibaba. It's like, what are you talking about? Uh, that, that's <laughs> not even comparable. That's, that's apples and very much oranges. 
Yeah. Uh, so, guys, I mentioned this right before we uh, hit the uh, mics, uh, but everybody has their phone on the table, and uh, I noticed none of them are actually folding right now, which, uh, of course, Samsung, this Friday, they're going to be releasing their long-awaited foldable phone, which, if you recall, was actually supposed to come out in April, but uh, kept getting a little bit too damaged amongst the samples that they were handing out to reviewers. I, I don't know, uh, Matthew, from your perspective, is this going to be a must-buy for the average consumer? Or is this going to be maybe just for the ultra rich, the Adam Newmans of the world are going to be the ones <laughs> buying these foldable phones initially? Sure. So I guess I will note that I'm sure Samsung is very happy they discovered these problems with the reviewer phones, as opposed to once thousands or hundreds or millions of these came into into the uh, into the public. Uh, so. Back in the day, I was a little bit dubious about the big, uh, the big phones that Samsung was coming out just when Apple, you know, introduced its slightly larger iPhone 4S or, or iPhone 5. And so thinking about how I use my phone, it's barely ever act as a phone. I often use it to read. Um, if you can make a phone sort of a smallish tablet, which folds into a phone, uh, into a phone, um, dimensions, then I do think that there would be a market for this. Perhaps it's at the high end for a while, but just realistically, it's it would be so much nicer to read on a twice to three times as big screen as I have now, even if it doesn't you know fit into my uh, my pants pocket quite as easily. Yeah, what if you're able to just maybe even hook up like a a keyboard and do some work on it, Linda? Is that going to be enough to you know make you put down two thousand dollars on a phone? No, and <laughs> and I can hook the keyboard up to my phone right now. But yeah, um, so the bigger screen might be nice for gamers. There's a, that option to have the gaming environment maybe for viewing movies and seeing files and people who are attempting, they're saying that they're going to attempt to work on these phones. Am I the only person who has, I have, my hand size isn't going to grow. I hold my phone in one hand and my coffee or my book or whatever the heck in the other hand. Um, I don't want a bigger phone. I don't want to open it up and have to hold it with two hands. That's what a tablet is. And that's why it sits on my desk or my lap when I'm using it. I also want my phone to be thinner than it is. And I'm using an iPhone tennis. 10s max so it's pretty thin it's big as i can get in the apple world i love the screen size i don't need it bigger i wouldn't want to open it up to have it twice as big i want it thinner i want it lighter and i want to see us moving to a world where we're not even holding a phone i have an apple watch and i use the apple watch with my airpods all the time and my phone stays in my bag and it doesn't come out very often at all which i love so i think that uh, we're seeing these phone, these new phones coming out because we have this cycle of developing new phone technology. Is this going to be the new phone that gets people to line up and in a lineup overnight to buy it? I don't think so. It's too expensive. I think it's gimmicky, and I think we need a real change in how we're developing our phones. What's the next big thing? And I think the next big thing is either smaller, thinner, lighter. Uh, or not a phone at all, some better integration with the rest of our environment. Yeah, so Matthew, are you going to join Linda on the train to get a, a brain chip or something like that? Yeah, uh... brain augmentation. <laughs> yeah. um, not quite yet. I'd have some privacy. Not not that Amazon doesn't already know my purchase habits, <laughs> but uh, not quite there yet. Now, just thinking about how I use my phone, um, typically if I'm just walking around, as, as would be the case with Linda, it sounds like, I'm typically listening to music or I'm, uh, I'm listening to a podcast, something of that sort. And so uh, if I distract myself with my screen, it's kind of a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's fine, but it's not ideal. 
just visioning in if I'm on transit, say, and I just want to read something, if I actually get a seat, then having a tablet format would be a, a wider phone. So mini tablet slash foldable phone uh, would be quite useful for me. Now, I do admit that that is a high price point, but I think this is kind of what Samsung's best move would be to do, would be to say, let's see what sticks. Again, once, once upon a time, there was this laughter at these gigantic megaphones that... Uh, uh, widescreen phones that Samsung was making. Uh, I would imagine that if Apple does someday come out with this kind of a thing, not that they would necessarily would, then it would be like, well, of course it was so obvious. But um, in some cases, much with pasta, it's like you just throw stuff at the wall and see what sticks. I mean, this is, sorry, this is a, this phone stacks up too high. If you saw the demonstration, you mm-hmm. fold the phone and that's the equivalent of two iPhones stacked on top of each other. My phone is well heavy enough. Right. It's just an interesting limitation to what I think comfort is in holding these devices. Mm -hmm. And we have a different mentality when we're holding a tablet that feels kind of emotionally a lot more like a computer. So you're Mm -hmm. a little more careful with it. Um, Phones are meant to be, they should be rather indestructible. The folding phone is not dust resistant or water resistant either. Right. And it's got a screen that can scratch. So I wonder yeah. by like iteration number five, though, if it's getting to the thinner phone, which I agree with you, Linda, I, I just want this to like slide right into my pocket and not have mm-hmm. to worry about it. But I was thinking that like a uh, vacation I went on back in June, there's like eight or nine flights that I had to take. Having access to that, you fold it out, you read, you watch a movie or something like that. That's kind of the perfect situation. But I'm with you, Matthew. Like most of the time, I'll be listening to podcasts or music, and it's more of a kind of passive thing that's going on with me. So I think we have maybe a few more iterations to go until we're finally ready to make the plunge. And I also think the price point's going to have to jump or drop quite a bit for just the average Joe to get a hold of Or 5G permeates our lives and all of a sudden our devices are hyper-connected and this concept of holding your main communication device doesn't have to happen anymore. I I like that. Okay, guys, uh, why don't we leave it off with this? This It's kind of a fun story here. But the U.S. National Highway Traffic Safety Administration, that's a mouthful, I know, uh, they have kind of a mandate now in, in which they want electric vehicles to emit noises so that's at low speeds people that may uh, not be aware of the vehicles they're made more aware of it and so what they're saying is that they should be able to uh, that drivers should be able to select the sound they prefer from a set of sounds installed in the vehicle so uh, Matthew kind of a bread and butter for you you're very much like an electric vehicle sort of guy Uh, do you like the idea of having uh, some sort of noises emanating from a vehicle in order to alert people or does that take away kind of the one of the novelty factors of an EV yeah, so um, I would say that uh, it doesn't take away the novelty factors all, at all. This this is a noise that gets transmitted outside the, the car, not inside the cabin. And uh, given that the interest here is to ensure safety for people who may be visually impaired um, and uh, who would ordinarily be able to hear the rumble of a combustion engine, I think it's a fantastic idea. Um, doing a little bit of a, just double-checking my notes, uh, BMW was actually working with Hans Zimmer, the uh, one of the big uh, movie soundtrack guys uh, in, in order to create electronic sounds for its uh, its vehicles. And the BMW i3 since 2014 or so has had this pedestrian alert kind of a mode which kicks in, um, which you can, sorry, optionally kick in to provide this proactively, you know, in the recognition that um, uh, it's, it's uh, appropriate for pedestrians to have some audible notification, hey, there's a car coming. Yeah, and I like the sound that the Nissan is making. Um, they the Nissan twenty seventeen. I can't remember the name of the model, but um, the the choral sounds that were created for that one are really cool. I think that sounds just like the 
the flying machines in Blade Runner. It's mm. got that really futuristic yet human friendly sound. Um, and I hope that we're going to be able to, in future cars, um, not have to hack the software to be able to put our custom sounds in. Because, of course, you're going to see people are going to want it to sound like a Lamborghini right. or a Harley Davidson right. without mufflers or yeah. whatever the heck. So so I don't think NHTSA would necessarily, NHTSA, the National Highway Transportation Safety Administration, would necessarily allow, uh, you know, Harley noises. I mean, they would certainly alert you to their presence. Um, but um, uh, I would think that uh, there's a tremendous opportunity here with electric transportation. If we have these futuristic cool noises coming out of the electric vehicles, then that, again, distinguishes them from the sort of humdrum 20th century technology, you know, the, the older combustion vehicles. So could be a, almost a selling point. You might go to your dealership to get the new, you know, the new sounds every year or whatever as part of your checkup. Or you buy your car based on its its color and the fact that it's an electric and let's see how it sounds. It's like, oh, yeah. that's not my sound. I got to go to a different model or a different make of car entirely. Well, yeah, had me at Hans Zimmer there, uh, Matthew, because of course uh, he did the score for Bad Max Fury Road. So if I can right. get some of those uh, anarchic sounds on the roads, uh, right. you know. Yeah. Is it Lincoln Park working with BMW? Is that uh, who they're working Mercedes, with? Mercedes. Mercedes, yeah. Yes. So crazy. Like, I would, not have, I would not have combined those. Like, I wouldn't have thought that. But, uh, you know, I guess there's a certain quality to the to the noises that, uh, that Mercedes wants, sort of a metallic rumbling kind of a power. It'll be interesting when uh, we can finally identify these interesting sounds like hitting the roads. But uh, Matthew and Linda, I want to thank both you guys for joining the show. Thanks for having me again. Thanks again. That's Linda Focus. She is CEO of Glue Technology Society and Matthew Klippenstein. He's a consultant at Electron Communications, and that's it for the show today. You can find our archives on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Tell a friend, and it'll help us reach more people. For now, I'm Tyler Orton. We'll be back tomorrow.